Well, let's take God's Word together this morning for our time left here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is what uh, immediately came to mind as I was thinking about uh, coming over here and short notice and the drive over and everything else. And uh, But I, I'm glad to be here. And Shane told me after the first service, I didn't know this, but this was the first passage that he remembers uh, committing to memory. Uh, and and I, I didn't know that at the time, but uh, I'm, I'm thankful to stir up some of those early thoughts in you and the Lord's work and how he's been so faithful. My goal this morning, uh, it is my, uh, my normal routine uh, to plunge the depths of of Scripture, as your pastor does week in and week out. You're going through 1 Corinthians, and we've been going through Genesis in my church for about the last 25 years, and, and uh, it might feel that way to some of my, my folks, but, but it is such a joy to be able to do that. And, and I, I feel somewhat my hands are tied a little bit today because I want to encourage you. I want to tell you that it's not the last 10 years, it's the next 50 uh, and that the best years are still ahead in the sense that we have so much to look forward to. We, we know what Christ is doing. We know what his plans are for the world. And we are seeing his faithfulness uh, extolled in our midst, in our congregation, and in missions, and around the world, and in so many wonderful ways. And we have a front row seat to that. And where else would you want to be? Uh, and so I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage this church with this very simple thing. Keep doing what you're doing. Shane, keep doing what you're doing. Don't, don't stop. You're just more of the same. The next 10 years need to be a more faithful example of the last 10 years and, and, and tighten the bolts a little bit, uh, uh, nail down a little loose screws here and there. Uh, we all have them. Uh, but, but really just focus on the main things and keep doing what you're doing. Specifically this morning, I want you to think about a question, and this is because this is primarily, not the only way, we know this, primarily how the Lord is using this man in this congregation as he uses men throughout all congregations that are faithful. Why should he preach? Why should he take his time and craft and deliver sermons? It's kind of a bizarre thing if you think about it. It really stands out in our culture. There's nothing else like it. There's just not. And in fact, Sometimes from church to church, there's not anything else uh, like it. But why should he go on preaching? Why should he spend hours laboring? And not just that, but how the preaching informs everything. We are, we are shepherds of the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God, right? Peter says, Paul says the same thing in Acts 20. Peter in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God. A primary instrument and the primary catalyst for this is the preaching of God's word, the faithful preaching of God's word. Why should he keep on doing this? And then there's a second question for you, the congregation. Why should you spend your time listening to preaching? We need preaching. Shane needs to preach. He needs to hear his own messages. And we need preaching. We need to hear it. We need to give attention to it. We need to make sure that we get in bed at the right time on Saturday night, not stay up too late watching college football, Auburn. And we need to be ready. We need to ready our kids. We need to ready our minds. We need to ready our hearts. And we need to give diligence to the preaching of God's Word. Why? That's what we want to talk about this morning, the why of this. I simply want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. It's not always going to be easy. There's a lot of other places you could be, but where else would you want to be? This is where God is working in this place, in you, in this pastor and his dear family. So this question is very simple this morning. Why, Shane, do you preach? 
the Bible? In congregation, why do you need to listen to the preaching of the Bible? What is the benefit of preaching? In 1982, John Stott wrote what has become a classic work on the subject of preaching, and it's called Between Two Worlds. And the only thing, you don't need to run out and buy it. You just need to remember one thing. And it's the first sentence of that classic work. And he said this in a very powerful, winsome way. He said, preaching is indispensable to Christianity. That is a powerful sentence. In other words, if you take out preaching, you take out that which informs congregational life. You take out that which sustains the diet of the church. You take out that which counsels the weak-hearted or the faint-hearted or the wayward. It is the preaching of the Word of God and, and in general, the entire ministry of the Word in the local church that really God uses and speaks to His people. It is, in that sense, Stott says, indispensable to Christianity. On a similar note, Al Mohler recently has written, he said this, the heart of Christian worship is the authentic preaching of the Word of God. Think about how much it informs our, our worship this morning. I was thinking through this. You know, worship is not just the music. Uh, it, is, it is everything that we do. And Paul says in Romans 12, really, it's all of life lived before God. But think about how much the Word of God informed all that we did this morning. How it just oozed from every sentence of the words that we sang together as praises to God. The scriptures that were read between songs. The scripture that was read in the congregational reading. How much the Word of God informs everything that we do. And now think about your life this week. Why are you the father that you are? It's hopefully because you are informed as a father or as a mother or as a child by the word of God. Your desire to, to reach the lost, your, your lost co-worker, all of these things, where does that come from? It comes from the word of God. So we need it preached. We need it unpacked. Psalm 119 says that the unfolding of your word gives light to the simple, to the naive. We're all naive and simple and we need the unfolding of God's word in our lives. If Al Mohler and John Stott are correct, then why is it necessary to even preach a sermon on such a settled question? And, and I believe in, in all sincerity that you're, you're already with me on this, right? Uh, that, that I'm probably not speaking to skeptics on this very question, but, but why? And, and the reason why is because it will not always be easy, and there will always be those who will say, you should do something else as a church. There will always be that temptation, Shane, to say, spend a little bit more time doing something else other than preaching and shepherding the flock of God. There's always been a camp in the larger world that has promoted the idea that faithful exposition of the Word of God was no longer needed. The modern roots of this can actually be traced back to a man who in 1928 here in the United States was the single most influential pastor in all of America. He was on the front of magazines. He was writing articles for magazines. Uh, John D. Rockefeller built him a church so that he could proclaim his message, whatever it was. And the roots of saying that preaching as we understand it, as the exposition and unfolding of God's word the roots of saying that that was not needed really goes back to this guy in the modern age in our country. 1928, Harry Emerson Fosdick, he published an essay in Harper's Magazine that was entitled, What's Wrong with Preaching? And he had a lot to say. 
Fosdick was the leader of theological liberalism and was seeking to make the case for a kind of preaching that he said, and he was one of the first to say this, a kind of preaching that is more relevant, as if the Word of God is not relevant, involving more of the experiences of the congregation and desiring to cut out exposition of the Bible altogether. What the people needed was just a, a pep talk. They don't need this ancient text. Fosdick derisively spelled this out in that Harper's Magazine article, and and listen to what he said. He said, many preachers indulge habitually in what they call expository sermons. They take a passage from Scripture and proceeding on the assumption that the people attending church that morning are deeply concerned about what the passage means. They spend their half hour or more on historical exposition of the verse or chapter, ending with some appended practical application to the auditors, could, listen to this, could any procedure be more surely predestined to dullness and futility? Who seriously supposes that? As a matter of fact, one in a hundred of the congregation cares to start with what Moses, Isaiah, Paul, or John meant in those special verses. Or came to church deeply concerned about it. Nobody else who talks to the public so assumes that the vital interests of the people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago. Well, call me naive. I do. Shane does. And I know you do as well. Fosdick's conclusion was that propositional, expositional, sequential preaching through the Word of God sourced in the biblical scriptures was irrelevant. That was his conclusion. He even went further. He said their method, that is faithful expositional preaching, however, has long since lost its influence, get this, over intelligent people. And the future does not belong to it. The future, I think, belongs to a type of sermon which can best be described as an adventure in cooperative thinking between the preacher and his congregation. This is why Stott said, real, true, biblical, expositional preaching is indispensable to Christianity. Because when you remove that, all you have is just some people getting together, sharing ideas. Do we really need another idea? Do we really need another opinion of anyone? Friends, we desperately need to hear from God. We need His Word. We need to feast upon His Word, to read His Word, to meditate on it, to internalize it, to memorize it, to preach it, and to tuck it away in our hearts so that we may not sin against God, that we may proclaim His glories. Thought was correct. It is impossible to affirm a love for God's Word and at the same time despise preaching. More importantly and more accurately, Kevin Van Hooser, he got this right. He said this, he said, The sermon, not some leadership philosophy or management scheme, remains the prime means of pastoral direction, and hence the pastor's paramount responsibility. The sermon is the best frontal assault on imaginations held captive by secular stories that promise other ways to the good life. If you were being tempted this morning to other ways of the good life, I'm here to tell you, look no further than the Word of God. Look to Christ. I think it will be helpful for us this morning to examine this question, 
Why preaching? Why listen to preaching? Through the lens of Paul's ministry to Corinth. Shane has been preaching through 1 Corinthians. And, and, and as you know, it is a rocky relationship with this church. But what a grace-filled relationship it is as well. And, and I, I think especially of 1 Corinthians 6, there toward the, the, the middle of that chapter, where, where Paul names, right after dealing with lawsuits, he names just one thing after another. He, he names adultery and thievery and homosexuality and all of these things. And, we're, and, and we're, our minds are just weighed down with the sins of the people. And then he has that most wonderful, gospel-filled statement, really one of the most gospel-filled in all of Scripture. And he looks at them and he says, Corinth, such were some of you. That is such a great testimony of God's grace. Think of what is gathered here this morning. Such were some of you. Maybe a few years from now, some of you will be able to say such were some of you. Paul loved the church of Corinth. Oh, but it caused him heartache. He loved that church in so many different ways, but it was difficult, and it was especially difficult when they went from just departing from doctrine, now they begin to attack the man himself. Well, we don't like his message. What's next if you don't like the message? We'll, we'll go after him. That's exactly what they did, and that's what 2 Corinthians is about in a nutshell. It is Paul defending his apostolic ministry to the church at Corinth. He gave his heart to that church, as we all should do, he left his heart on the floor of that church. Like any good ministry, it was filled with painful disappointments, immorality, lawsuits, doctrinal confusion, painful counseling situations, disciples running amok. Paul made what he called in 2 Corinthians 2, 1, a painful visit that he says was filled with sorrow. A group of false teachers had arisen in the church and their first order of business was to call into question Paul's credentials as an apostle, as a minister of the gospel. And so 2 Corinthians is his defense of this. And in this letter, Paul defends his apostleship, his preaching, and his love for the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.6. We're not going to have time to, to unpack this, but he makes a very weighty statement. In chapter 3, he unpacks this to some degree. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, he sums up his ministry in this way. He says, it is as one who has been given by God, who has been made a minister of the new covenant. That is a very, very significant theological and practical phrase. The new covenant. It pervades the Old Testament, starting with Isaiah and Ezekiel, and even looking forward to that time, even under Moses. We see it ratified by the blood of Christ. And so when Paul says that he is a minister of the new covenant. In a nutshell, this is what he's saying. We are ministers who proclaim the promise of forgiveness, the indwelling of the Spirit, all of which has been ratified in the blood of Christ at Calvary for us and has been sealed by His uh, resurrection. And now this is what we proclaim. We're ministers of this. So as a minister of the new covenant, this is his business. Proclaiming the mercies of God, proclaiming forgiveness, proclaiming the once and for all death and resurrection of Christ. Paul has reminded the Corinthians time and again that his ministry centers on the preaching of the Word of God. When we say that, and I want you to hear this carefully, when we say that the main thing he is to do is to preach, that doesn't mean that's all that he does. Any preacher who says that's all that he does is not worth the title shepherd. 
He is a shepherd of souls, and it takes diligence. It starts in his own home. He must be qualified there as a leader, and then it expands to the congregation, and in some cases, even to the community and even to the world. He is a shepherd of souls, and that was Paul's ministry, as you remember in Acts 20. The only occasion that I can remember where Paul is literally face-to-face with elders of a local congregation, Acts 20. He's standing on the beach of Miletus with the uh, elders of Ephesus, and they are crying on one another's shoulders, and he's telling them he doesn't know if he's ever going to see them again. Shepherd the flock of God. 1 Peter 5, one of Peter's last messages to the suffering church. What is it? 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God. Don't lord it over them. Love them. Where did Peter get that? You remember after the resurrection, the Lord restores Peter for denying him. And three times, he doesn't say, Peter, attend more meetings. Peter, just be a little more eloquent. When he asked Peter three times, Do you love me? And Peter responds. And each time Peter gives that response, what does Jesus say? Three times in two different ways. He says, shepherd the flock, feed the sheep. Preaching. It's through day in and day out ministry, counseling, modeling in your own family. It's all of those things. Don't think for a moment that all this guy does is just preach on Sundays. Hey, pastor, I thought I'd call you up. You don't have to work till Sunday, right? That's... It's laborious at times, but it is a joy-filled work. He who desires this office, it is a, what, good work he desires. It's a good work. This, is, this just oozes out of the heart, the ministerial heart of Paul, the apostle. So whenever Paul references his ministry of preaching, don't think of that as just preparing a few sermons. It is always an assumed ingredient that he gives himself to the preaching of the word. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you will remember in verse 17, he said that the central thrust of his ministry was preaching and it was not in cleverness of speech so that why? So that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And we preach in such a way, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 1, in such a way that it's going to be a stumbling block to the Jew and it's going to be foolishness to the Greeks. They're going to look at what you do here at Faith Community Church on Sundays and say, those are a bunch of weirdos. There's always room for more, right? We are crazy for God. We are fools for Christ's sake. That's what Paul taught us. Question, again, the repeated refrain this morning is, why preach and why listen to preaching? We just want to hammer on this for a little while. So, Bear with me while I hammer on this point till we say amen. Winston Churchill said to do this. He said, if you have an important point to make, don't try to be subtle or clever. Use a pile driver. Hit the point once, then come back, hit it again, then hit it a third time with a tremendous whack. What we want to do this morning is want to hit this point and camp out here. And I want to answer this question, why preach and why preaching, by making just a few big picture observations. We are not going to plunge the depths of this passage this morning. But we want to make some big picture survey of the forest observations here of what Paul's ministry looks like in 2 Corinthians 4. There's some wonderful things to behold here. Why preach and why listen to preaching? Number one, because it it manifests uniquely the mercies of God. Preaching manifests the mercies of God. Notice verse 1. Therefore, 
since we have this ministry. The therefore there looks back to what Paul said in chapter 3. Therefore, because we have this new covenant ministry centered in the person and work of Christ. Because of this, we have this ministry. Why do we have it? Because we're really smart. Because we went to the right seminaries. Because we have the right connections. We have this ministry. Why does he say in verse 1? As we have received mercy. You and I, newsflash friends, you and I shouldn't be here this morning. You and I have no business being here. You and I have no business breathing God's air. It is a work of God's grace that we are able to stand here and sing and rejoice and at times lament all in the presence of God with God's people and hear God's word preached and hear it read and fellowship around that and build our lives on that this week. That is all an example of God's mercy to you. How do we know that? Because if we are still breathing right now and you're hearing these words right now, that is an example of God's mercy that He has not snuffed us out in His judgment. He's shown mercy. He's shown mercy. What is mercy? Very simply, there's a lot we could say here, but it is simply this, God withholding judgment. God has withheld His judgment. We can sing about that, can't we? We can rejoice in that, that the Creator, the Almighty, the Most Powerful, the One who spoke and the universe and all of its splendor was hung in just a moment. And then He picked up dust out of the ground, breathed life into it and called it man and woman. Out of nothing, this God who is holy and dwells in unapproachable holiness whom no man has seen or can see because he is a holy and awesome God. This God has condescended to us and he has put on flesh in Jesus Christ and he has shown us in the face of Christ and in the work of Christ as the true God-man. He has shown you and me mercy, right? Preaching manifests the mercy of God. Quite literally, he says here, We are to be ministers of mercy. We have received this. Paul always thought of his ministry. You see this all the way through his ministry. It was never something he just said, you know, that's that's something I chose. (laughs) That's something that I pursued. It was always something that he received. And he could never, even to his last day in 2 Timothy, he's still scratching his head saying, I don't know how I got here. (laughs) Don't know how I got here. All I can say is God's grace. That's true of all of us, isn't it? He received this ministry. He says this in other ways, very uh, multicolored ways. Acts 20, verse 24, this ministry received from the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 1, regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Ephesians 3, 7, I was made a minister as a gift of God's grace. Mercy. All faithful ministry, whether it be pulpit ministry or all the many ministries that happen within the body of Christ. All faithful ministry rests on this foundation, a foundation of mercy. God has been so gracious to us as a people. So in this sense, as Paul is beginning to talk about this in verse 1, in this sense, the minister is called to be a minister of mercy. As those who have received mercy, give it to others. He will say in a later chapter, we, are, we have been reconciled and now we have a ministry of reconciliation. In this sense, 
The preacher is like a physician whose scalpel, his instrument, is the Word of God. And it is the Word of God speaking to our hearts that continually reminds us of the mercies of God. Lamentations says that they are new every morning, right? We need to be reminded of that. We need to have that preached to us. We need to spur one another on in our conversations this week, in our our lunch table meetings, and all of those things in our homes. Remind one another of the mercies of God. Not another opinion, not another debate, but a fresh proclamation of the wisdom and the mercy of God. Preacher is to be a skilled physician who is constantly reminding you of this. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he he said it this way, Ministers are physicians under God to cure sick souls. God has set in His church pastors, teachers. The ministers are a college of physicians. Their work is to find out disease and apply medicines. It is hard work. While ministers are curing others, they themselves are nigh unto death and even broken legs. He didn't say that. Many ministers do sooner kill themselves by preaching, then cure their patients. But through the work of the ministry, and though it may be laborious work, it is needful work, he says. While there are sick souls, there will always be need for spiritual physicians. Congregation, this morning, you need to give yourself to the hearing of God's word preached. It is a taste of God's mercy that has been received by those who followed in Christ's footsteps, His chosen disciples and apostles that has been passed on through the ages and has been given as gifts, Ephesians 4 says, to the leadership of the church whose goal is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Give yourself to this. Cancel appointments to be here. Arrange your week so that this becomes not the last day of the week, but the first day of the week. You know what I mean? Arrange your life so that it shows the importance and the value of the preaching of God's Word. Where else in our culture will you regularly hear things like this? Where else are you going to hear that? Sadly to say, you won't even hear that in some churches. There's a second broad observation we want to make here, not only about the mercies of God, but, but also why preach and why, and why listen to it? Because it crushes worldly ambitions. Crushes worldly ambitions. What does that mean? Verse 2. But we have renounced things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The Apostle Paul, in short, had everything worldly speaking. He had a name, he had prestige, he had education, he had standing not only in the, uh, the religious world of Israel and its hierarchy, but he also had standing even in the Roman world as a citizen and was even, to make, even able to make appeal to that at times. He could not be set in a better place culturally speaking, educationally speaking, and all of those things. He had the pedigree. You can rehearse his pedigree and he reminds you of his pedigree in books like Philippians. He also tells you there what he thinks of all of that. Here we have just a taste of this as well. In verse 2, he says, we've renounced those things. We've renounced them. He has always been a preacher 
But at salvation, he became a preacher of righteousness. He preached hate. He preached despising the church of God, throwing them to the the fires of persecution, arresting them. We renounce these things. But not only that, we've renounced uh, distorting the word of God. He says here, there is a very serious charge that he is answering to. And, And the implied idea is that the Corinthians are saying this about Paul. Paul says, not so fast. We've renounced these things. And the serious charge here leveled at this preacher is this. And could there be a more serious charge? Adulterating the word of God. That word is used in the Greek outside of the New Testament, referring to the corruption of a fine wine or the importation of impurities in fine gold the ruining of of really nice wine or the corruption of pure gold. And that is what they were charging Paul with. A man who had left his heart and soul on the floor of that congregation, he had given his life for them, and they said, you're adulterating the word of God. Paul sets this aright in other places, not only here. We can hear an echo of this in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 3, he says, Our exhortation, our preaching, it does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God's our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. It's not about that. It's not about his pedigree. Paul is concerned that in their despising of him, he's not here just fighting for his name, saying, don't you know who I am? That's not what Paul is saying. Because when they say that he is adulterating the word of God, it's not he that they are despising. It is the word of God. It is Christ that they are despising. We need to keep it at the right level as well. Preacher and congregation. We're not in favor of dumbing down the Word of God, but speaking the glories of the Word of God. And sometimes we put on snorkel gear and we go way down deep and we learn wonderful things about the Word of God and what He's doing. But we also need to be reminded that it speaks very plainly and very simply into our lives. And that message can get so clouded up by other things at times. There was once a a young seminary student sitting at the the dinner table with Martin Luther, as he often had, and it would be published later in his uh, table talks. And he would have seminary students and people from the church. They were always sitting around his table with his family, all of his kids, and his wife, Catherine Von Bora. And they're sitting around this, this table. And on one occasion, one student named Bernard, poor old Bernard, he, he evidently made a statement to the effect of, well, isn't it great that we have all these, these doctors of theology and we, we have all these wise men in our church and our church is just full of them and, and look at what the Lord is doing in that sense. And, and you can hear Luther pound the table and say, it's not about that. Have the words of Luther ring in our ears because we know what he said. He said, probably after banging his hand on the table, looking at Bernard, What's the difference among reformers? By the way, it's just a side note. Here's how I explain it. What's the difference between Luther and Calvin? You want to hang out with Luther on Friday night, you want to be under Calvin's ministry on Sunday morning. That's it in a nutshell. But, but Luther was a lively guy, okay? And, and 
And he lived life. I like that. He lived life. Calvin was man of the word. They both were, but very different. But after Bernard opens his mouth and says this, Luther looks at him in the eye and he's sitting around the table and I'm sure everything got quiet very quickly. And he says, Cursed is every preacher who seeks glory in the church, strives for honor, and out of ambition wants to please this or that person. Whenever I preach around here, I step down to the lowest level. I don't stand at the level of the doctors and the masters, of whom scarcely 40 are present. It's a big church. But a hundred or thousand young people and children. It is to them I preach. And I adapt to them. And they deserve that too. And listen to this. If the others don't want to listen, well, the door is open. Therefore, my dear Bernard, take care to be simple and direct. Don't concern yourself with those who claim to be learned, but be a preacher to the unschooled youth and the sucklings. That is good. A good word for us. That doesn't mean we dumb it down. But we need to taste afresh the simple mercies of God daily. This is a ministry of mercy that we have. Through the word of God and this ministry of mercy, squashing worldly ambitions of the Apostle Paul and everyone else, When that happens, we see the holy character of God revealed. Look at verse 3. Because we will get pushback. And Paul announces this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. God not only attends to the souls of His people through preaching, but He also shames the self-professed wise man. We could define preaching simply as this. Help for the hurting, but it is also judgment for the hard-hearted. We see a taste of both here as a minister of mercy, but also Paul acknowledging that there are some who will go on sadly into their own eternal demise, rejecting the word of God. They have been blinded in what their hearts have loved. They have been blinded in what their hearts from birth have pursued. And they have fallen headlong into sin and they will only taste that in eternity. Yet, God's character is upheld. We can just park things here for a moment and think about this. Preaching in this way lifts up the word of God in such a way that the preacher is obscured from view. And what Paul is talking about here is the glory and greatness of Christ is exalted. When you hear a good sermon, it is not what an awesome preacher. It is what a great Lord. What a powerful word was brought to us from the lips of this earthen vessel. We need to move on. But just think of the difficulty and the impossible nature of what Paul describes here. Think about this. What what we just read in verses 3 and 4. God's blinded people. God of this world has blinded people in their sin. They are awash in their sins. They They cannot, they are incapable of spiritually hearing anything. And they need the Spirit of God to awaken their hearts so that they can even begin to understand the truth of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14, right? So think about this. 
They are blind. They are dead, Ephesians 2, 1. They cannot hear. They cannot see. They are dead in trespasses and sins. And God still says to preachers, keep on preaching. Keep on preaching. Moms, keep on being faithful to those children. Those girlfriends that you have lunch with. Dads, keep on being faithful. Keep living for Christ. The Lord is using you and working His Word through your life. And He will use means preaching and the teaching and the living of the Word of God to open eyes to behold wonderful things and the glories of Christ. It's not preaching and living your life as a Christian is not difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. Except we have God. And we have everything in Him for life and godliness. Why else? Just a couple more quick thoughts here. Why else should he preach and we listen to preaching? Because it exalts, it exalts Christ and not man. It exalts Christ and not man. We see this in verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. The word that he uses here for preach, Paul uses the same word, just a slightly different form in 2 Timothy 4.2, a really well-known passage to many of you. It's a word that carries the idea of heralding, uh, like we think of medieval times of one coming from a king and going into a, another kingdom, and he's bringing a message from the king. He's not to tamper with it. He's not to change it. He's just to deliver it and say, this is what the king has said. Or we think of a waiter who has been charged to deliver the meal. The executive chef is in the back room. He has prepared it. He's done everything that is needed. And waiter, all you need to do is just deliver it and make sure you don't drop it on the way out. This kind of ministry exalts Christ. What an awesome chef, right? What an awesome king. The adequacy of our ministry is not found in our abilities, it's found in the Lord. Moms, dads, don't trust yourselves. Trust the Lord. Put your faith in Him. Live that out. Commit your ways to the Lord. This requires that leadership in the church watch their life and their doctrine closely. It is not enough to be merely orthodox on paper. We must be holy. This is why the first word about elders, when Paul says to Timothy, uh, put elders in place in the churches there in Ephesus, the first word out of his mouth about that is not how good they preach. It is about what kind of families they have. We do not preach ourselves. Ministry that exalts Christ is better than a ministry that will be known amongst the masses. Just be faithful. Keep doing what you're doing. Just be faithful. Continue to love this pastor and his family and all of your leadership. Love them deeply. Listen to what they are saying. They are giving their lives for you. Keep loving the flock, Shane and Tara. Give your lives to them. God is pleased to use preachers in this way. Paul says, that a faithful ministry of the word will proclaim the riches of God's sovereignty in verse 6. God said, and just note this, God, these words of creation here. In salvation, God says, Light shall shine out of darkness where there was no light is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
What a beautiful thing. All of this is a work of God. One last observation. Why preach and why listen to preaching? Most importantly, it magnifies the Lord in times of weakness. It magnifies the Lord in times of weakness. I've been thinking about this a lot, in not only in my own life, but in, in our preaching, in our ministry in Huntsville, in preaching through Genesis. Last week, we came to that wonderful chapter, Genesis 32, where the Lord, not some messenger of Satan, not some evil presence in the world, not Satan himself. The Lord himself takes Jacob's hip and he goes, we need to tweak our theology a little bit, folks. We are fond of saying the Lord allows suffering. This might be a dangerous thought, but the God that I find in Scripture will also at times bring suffering. That's how Israel got on the map, Genesis 32. I've seen this in my own life. I was thinking about this as these dear children were standing here this morning, about what they're privileged to see and learn and grow up in. It's such a privilege to be able to see this. In my own life, this has been so true. Just a few years ago, my wife was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer, and they told us she's probably not going to make it. I had four small children. They're all small to me still, but four small children at the time. One, three, five, and seven when I had to tell them this. But what my children were allowed to see in that moment and over the course of the last few years is a church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ and are such examples of the body of Christ to them. They're they're growing up on front row seats seeing this. Why are they always in our house? (laughs) Why are they cleaning for us? Why are they doing all these? Because they love us. Why are we going to Disney World? They love us. Magnifies the Lord in our weakness. Got just about five minutes. I could unpack this the rest of my life. Paul calls the preacher. Let me just summarize verses 7 through 12. Read it. Meditate on it this week. Think about it deeply. Pray over it. Verses 7 through 12. Paul calls the preacher an earthen vessel, a clay pot. It is, I believe, God's will that the ministers of the gospel and your leaders stay, remain in a state of weakened dependence. Now, not weakened because of their own or our own foolishness or poor decisions and those kind of things, but weakened in the sense that we are dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ and everything. We need to pray that way leaders. Preaching is an extremely unusual practice because it requires that a perfect message be filtered through an imperfect vessel. Earthen vessels, clay pots. This means on the side of the preacher that great labor and skill must be applied to the task. The church's ministers are like fragile clay pots, but the treasure they hold, we learn here, is the water of life. And if you drink from this water, you'll never go thirsty, ever. God is pleased and exalted when the preacher is weak and fully dependent. And the Bible is full of descriptions of this. Noah, Job, Joshua, Ezra, the scribes with Ezra, the prophets, 
Amos, Elijah, Elisha, the apostles, Philip, Jesus himself, right? All preachers. Except Jesus broke the mold. Finally, a preacher who is perfect. And so all other preachers anticipated him before him, and all preachers after him look back to him and say, look at him. What a sight. These are just a few reasons why we preach and why we should listen to preaching. Ten years. It's a long time. In another sense, it's not. It's a drop in the bucket. What about a pastorate that goes on for 57 years? 57 years of anything is a long time. No offense to some of you. 57 years, same pulpit. 57 years. There was such a man in the year 1729, the Central Church of Northampton, Massachusetts. They lost that pastor. 57 years, and he went home to be with the Lord. And this was devastating to this congregation because their pastor, Solomon Stoddard, had been preaching from that same pulpit. They've never had to look for another pastor. They've never known what a search committee looked like. The congregation did not know where to turn, so they called Stoddard's young assistant. He was just a young kid by those standards, by the standard of a 57-year-old pastorate. He had been ministering in the church sort of like an intern for two years. The young man was only 26 years of age. Not only did this young minister have to follow a pastor of 57 years, but it just so happened that Stoddard was the young assistant's grandfather. So not only do you have to follow this pastor of 57 years, whom everybody loved, but he's also your grandfather. So we expect big things out of you. There was no one, there was, there was such a dearth of other preachers. There, there was no one to even preach this young man's installation service. So he preached it himself. His passage that morning was 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he did this because he was afraid that his ministry would constantly be compared to the former pastor's ministry. Additionally, more importantly, he did not want people to look to him or even his grandfather, but he wanted them to look to Christ. At the end of the sermon, the young and probably trembling assistant, new preacher, exhorted the still grieving congregation who had lost their dear pastor He exhorted them at the end of the sermon with these words. He said this, And let us be exhorted at this day to look to God for His blessing upon means of grace, that though God has removed one that had much of His Spirit and whose administration He was wont to accompany with so much of His Spirit, the Lord would be pleased still make the excellency of His power to appear by the success of remaining means that he would make it to appear that he is able to do the greatest things by this feeble instrument. Let us, all of us, earnestly pray that he would give us a great treasure, though it be in an earthen vessel. I believe God answered that prayer. That young man's name was Jonathan Edwards. Congregation, let us earnestly pray Seriously, that God would continue to show His mercies and would continue to give us this great treasure 
though it be in an earthen vessel. Amen? Most Heavenly Father, we commit our ways to you. We thank you for your ministry through this church, through its leadership, through its people, through its missionary endeavors. We pray that you would only strengthen that in the days to come. We pray that there would be many more years and decades of influence and ministry and tears and rejoicings. All because of your grace and your mercy. Father, be with these dear people. Pray that they would never lose sight of your gospel in Christ Jesus. We pray as well that you would open up blind eyes, even those that are present here today, so that they would behold the gospel, that you would grant faith and repentance, that you would show your gospel in the hearts of those who do not know you and still need to hear you. Father, show your mercy. And Father, extend this ministry by your grace, through your spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father. And all of us say,